when you have a first-person perspective, that's usually where you see the unreliable narrator, and everything is colored from their their perspective, their perception of how things play out. And if you're dealing with multiple narrators, as some stories do, uh, that really colors everything. Um, because then you, then you get like a Rashomon or 12 Angry Men type of situation where you have varying POVs that differ from one another and provide different context based on personal experiences as well as the sequence of events that take place in the story. Welcome to Speculative Sandbox, your audio playground for creative storytellers. My name is Vicki Lawn, and each episode, I and a guest will unpack a fiction trope with an eye for character development and narrative structures. Make sure to look for Speculative Sandbox on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, where you can join the conversation. Leave comments or questions, or let us know what other tropes we should cover. When the real world just doesn't cut it, let's get lost in a fictional one. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, Garrett K. Jones to Speculative Sandbox. I'm so excited to have you on here. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. I'm really excited to be here. This is going to be a lot of fun. I am really excited to talk about unreliable narrators with you. That's a topic I've been wanting to do for a while, so I was really excited when you selected that one. And Mm -hmm. uh, before we get into the topic, I have some icebreaker questions for you. Are you ready? Awesome. Okay. What is a book or movie that made you so uncomfortable you couldn't finish it, but yet you can't stop thinking about it? Uh, when I first started reading Goosebumps in like late elementary, early middle school, mm-hmm. uh, I was reading the, it was the second book in the series, Stay Out of the Basement. Oh yeah. And it was legitimately creepy. It was really my first foray into reading horror without like my dad reading it, some reading something to me. Mm-hmm. And so it, made me really uncomfortable there's some really creepy moments in that and when you're you know 11 or 12 that kind of really stands out to you and that um yeah it, it I, I finished the book but it, like I would take periodic breaks to to get through as far as movies um I, I remember when I was in the theater seeing the Truman Show uh starring Jim Carrey uh, I was in high school at the time and uh, it was a crowded theater. And so just the, the the framework of the story made me feel claustrophobic. And I'm not usually a claustrophobic person, uh, but with all the people in the theater, I was just, I'm like, I need to get out of here. Um, but there's one movie that as much as it, as much as it makes me uncomfortable, I can't help but obsess over some of the imagery in it. And that's uh, the M. Night Shyamalan movie, Old, that came out two years ago. I've watched, you know, videos about it or I've read about it. I've, but yeah, the imagery in it is just so like, it's, it just stuck with me. 
my next icebreaker question is describe your ideal writer's retreat. Where would you go? <laughs> what gets you, you know, your brain turning the best? Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> you know, this is something I've thought about. Um, my um because my my grandmother had this cabin up at Huntington Lake I, I'm in Central California I grew up going to this this cabin um up in Huntington Lake um it, it's about 7,000 feet up and it just gorgeous landscape I would hike the creek and stuff like that and so like if if it weren't for the fact that it wasn't internet capable I'd probably love being up. Actually, it would probably be better for me because then I wouldn't have anything distracting me. It would just be, uh, I would just have, you know, access to the electricity for, you know, computer and writing and all that. And then whatever amenities I had as far as like plumbing and, and you know, cooking. Like when I graduated college in 2009, uh, I went on a, like a nine day cruise down to Acapulco. And the majority of the time was, at sea and because we, we were hitting some storms it was mid-october uh i was in the process of writing my second book which takes place out on the ocean it deals with um with pirates and, and being on the high seas and um it was the perfect environment to be writing i i spent most of my days writing this this last question kind of puts a spotlight on you a little bit while segueing into our topic mm. so when was the last time you lied and what was it about Gosh, uh, you're like, I'm busy this weekend. I can't get together, but really you're just tired and burnt out and you want to sleep. I'm going to lie. Yeah, I, I think the last time I lied was, was, um, was a week ago yesterday. My dad comes over and helps me do yard work in my house. Last weekend, I just, after a very long week of work, I'm like, I am burned out. I, I need a break. And, um, you know, let's do it next week. He's like, okay, we'll do it next week. And then yesterday came around, I woke up at, you know, at the time that we would normally start and I'm getting a message from him saying, Hey, you know, let's just go to breakfast today. I'm like, sweet. <laughs> so it worked out. Um, yeah. I, I, like I said, I really try not to lie. Cause it, cause what happens when that lie gets, you know, when it becomes revealed as, as falsehood and then you have to deal with the aftermath of that, even if it's a little thing. And like, I, I've got a kid, uh, he's six and a half and, and I really try hard, especially with him not to lie because it's really easy for parents to lie to their kids mm, yes. um, and over little things too. And I, I don't want to be that parent that does that because like, if I set, if I say, Hey, yeah, we're going to do this. I want to make sure that we can follow through and do that. Now that people have gotten to know you a little bit more and learned your darkest, deepest secret of when you <laughs> lied <laughs> this past weekend or whatever, um, how about you tell our listeners about yourself and why you're interested in the topic of unreliable narrators? Okay, so um, I'm, I've been a writer for a long time. I mean, probably since probably third grade. I, um, that was the first time I ever really wrote anything of any length. It was, and it was a one page, you know, uh, fan fiction piece about what would happen if I met the Ninja Turtles, um, which was a lot of fun. And it kind of just got me on this path of becoming a writer. Um, since 2015, I have published five books in an ongoing fantasy series, Medieval Fantasy. Uh, I've per I published one Kindle slash audiobook of original poetry as well as been the narrator for a book that's currently zooming around on Audible uh, called Acid Trip, um, which is about the author's experiences being in a 
religious organization and trying to um, trying to uh, balance that with his his teens and young adult life during the mid 80s and the, the new wave SLC punk scene that hit in northern Utah. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, so I've got a I've got a you know plethora of experience with this, but I, I like with regards to the topic of of unreliable narrators, unreliable narrators make things fun because for for a reader or for it, you know, I'm I'm a very visual person, so like movies, um, if you have an unreliable narrator, it is it makes things interesting because then you're then you're left wondering, well, did this really happen the way I think it did, or is it is everything being colored by the perspective of the narrator? Because you don't you like when you have a, an omniscient third person narrator, you don't usually have anything that is unreliable, um, because the narrator operates as kind of like this god's eye perspective. When you have a first person perspective, that's usually where you see the unreliable narrator, and everything is colored from their pers- their perspective, their perception of how things play out. And if you're dealing with multiple narrators, as some stories do, uh, that really colors everything. Um, because then you, then you get like a Rashomon or 12 Angry Men type of situation where you have varying um, POVs that differ from one another um, and provide different context based on personal experiences as well as the sequence of events that take place in the story. That also makes me think of Game of Thrones, actually, where you have the multiple POVs, because I remember reading it very uh not really not deeply i read it before the show came out the first book and Mm -hmm. i at that time wasn't as familiar with unreliable narrators in like fantasy i i thought i was reading it straightforward um and it wasn't until later when i started you know reading what people were saying online that actually like as you read each chapter like you can't necessarily take what the person is saying as fact um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of uh, biases and almost like they want, they're, they're trying to influence the reader on how to think. And then you've discovered the truth of it, or at least a different version of it from a different POV. And then that helps to color, you know, what's actually going on in the world, which, I mean, it makes sense if you think of the world of politics, right? Where one right. party believes one way, another party believes another, and it's all colored by their their perspectives. And you ha- kind of have to come to your own conclusions, what's, what's possibly the truth. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and, and that's kind of the fun thing because then you get to see you get to see the same sequence from different perspectives. Um, I think one of it, the, the execution and some of the dialogue was a little corny, but the movie Vantage Point, which came out in 2011 or 2012, does this very well because it takes a singular event, which is which is a terrorist attack in a, I want to say a European capital. I can't remember where exactly it takes place, but there's 12 different characters that everything uh gets colored through and so you get to see the same different sequence of events from their perspective the things that they do see that are the same things that they see that aren't the same um different angles of and and of how it took place so like whereas you could see one thing happen like one perspective is dead on like right in the middle of everything and you see it right in the front of their face another perspective could be like two blocks away and they're seeing it from the side angle and mm-hmm. they're seeing it from it. And it's, it's the, the way it was shot was and edited was brilliant because it gave you that sense of what's really going on here. I want to get every single perspective I possibly can. 
Um, it does feel a bit repetitive because basically you're watching the same movie 12 times in short mm-hmm. vignettes, but it provides you that idea that you can't rely on just one perspective, especially if you have it cu- uh, being told to you from a first person perspective. Um, and um, another, they tried doing this with when Netflix got their hands on the show Arrested Development. The fourth season was done in a non-linear way originally. So every episode was colored from the perspective of a particular character in the show. And the problem was everything was taken out of out of order. So the thing so the events are colored from their perspective and the, and the sequences that they are involved in directly. But and so when you look at it as a whole, the season looked really weird. What ended up happening is because it was such an unpopular way to tell that particular story, Netflix went back and they re-edited the entire season and did it in a linear format so it was easier to understand. And it still didn't make things any better for, for the fans, but it did help bring things into a better perspective. Do you think the fans would have liked the more disjointed version? Well, yes and no, but it fun- but one of the things that really kind of messed with people on this one is that in se- this fourth season, like um, Jason Bateman's character, Michael, was always a very, I mean, he was not a great character, but he was, he was mostly likable. By the time you get to, the, to season four and the way that he is portrayed in season four, he is awful. He's maybe even worse than his, his, the rest of his family. Oh, okay. Yeah. I haven't it, seen it, all, I've only seen like a couple episodes of the first season. I didn't realize that that happened to his character. Yeah. It, well, at least that was my, that was my take on it. And again, perspective being and perception being the key words here. Um, but yeah, I, the, the show, I mean, he's not a great, like I said, he's not a great character, but he was mostly likable in the first three seasons. Cause really all he was doing was just trying to keep his family together. Mm-hmm. Um, this one, he's, he's as much of a chump as the rest of them. And it's, it's not, it's not a fun color for him. So, but it, it it's fun because even in that, because you do have an omniscient narrator voiced by, by uh, Ron Howard, Ron Howard does play an unreliable narrator because at the end of each episode, they would say, well, here's what's coming up in the next episode. And they never do that in the next episode. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. So they set this expectation of here's what you're going to see in, in the follow-up. They never do that. I, I, I love that. That's, I, I kind of love it when storytelling is playful. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <You know? laughs> I do too. Um, one of my favorite examples of, of, of this where you have that that unreliable well it's not exactly an unreliable narrator but if you uh but jonathan stroud did he's the guy who created the lockwood and company series that's now been televised by netflix okay um he has another series called the bartimaeus series and there's there's the first three books are a trilogy taking place in mostly modern day um and then the fourth book takes place during the reign of king solomon of israel and Bartimaeus, with the title character, he is a fourth level genie in service to a group of magicians. Um, and in the first three books, he's he's in service to this young magician who's like in his teens in, at the beginning of the series. Um, and uh, so you have magicians who are running uh, politics in England and other parts of the world as well. 
And um, so the queen is mostly like a figurehead, not really any ruling. Same with the prime minister, kind of. It's mostly the magicians working behind the scenes. Okay. And they use, they summon these ifrits and, and these ghouls and these, and these genies, you know, to do their bidding. So th- there's really no magic other than the, the summoning spells used to, to conjure and or punish these spirits. Um, so the rest of it, so like when you think like a book is just floating behind a magician, it's really an invisible imp just carrying the weight of the, the stack of books. But the chapters that are told from Bartimaeus's perspective are done in a first person perspective. And so um, he, his whole perception is that human beings are awful creatures. Uh, they're slave drivers. All they want to do is punish his kind. And even then his kind, you know, have their own issues and 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 prejudices with one another because they're different different classifications and stuff like that but he is not fond of human beings and you get that in the way that he talks with other humans but then you get the the chapters that are told from a human's perspective and the humans it's from that it's told as an omniscient third person narrator and so um what you're seeing is how they're interacting with everything else and why they're driven to do the things that they're doing, especially when it comes to dealing with Bartimaeus. Um, and so it's, it's really kind of an interesting uh, gimmick where you go back and forth from first person to a, a third person perspective. Those are some great examples. So let's talk about, I looked, I looked it up. I saw at first I saw four types of unreliable narrators, and then I found a fifth one. So I wanted to go through them with you real quick and talk about what they mean and maybe some examples that we could think of as we go. So the first one is Picaro, which is knack for exaggeration. Then we have the madman who is detached from reality. We have the naive perspective, uh, limited by their, their experience or age. We have the liar, which is the most deliberate form of unreliable narrator. And then we have the outsider, someone who comes from a completely different background and experience and the characters that they're talking to us about. So what are your thoughts on these five types? And is do you have a, a favorite kind? It, it, I don't really necessarily have a favorite. What I Because I write from a third person perspective most of the time. Um, but what I do like to do is when I'm writing a character, I don't, I, I it depends, like, so I wrote a short story. It's it's uh, it's in the process of being published in an anthology in the next year, um, and it was it was written from uh, the, the the prompt was something that was uh, Lovecraftian in nature, H.P. Lovecraft. And I've never really been one for cosmic horror, but I thought this would be a fun challenge. And so I wrote from the perspective of a sailor who was washed ashore on this island, um, and he is encountering some kind of eldritch deity and he's going crazy at the same time and and what and so i play off the the madman perspective um where he's he's suffering for ptsd and he's he's dealing with mental illness and he ends up like he ends up getting corrupted by this this entity that he is in contact with um and uh, it forces it forces him to uh, to come to terms with the fact that he left on, on his voyage after killing his wife. Oh, wow. Um, and because as he's washing ashore on this island, he keeps hearing her voice and she keeps saying his name and he, he is trying to look for her. And so the entity actually uh, disguises itself as her 
trying to uh, trying to prompt him to do what he what she what it wants him to do. Interesting. I, I like that that use of the supernatural to invoke madness. Um, I, another example that I well, I'm trying to kind of reconcile with this particular book because I can see it kind of balancing between the madman, which is detached from reality, and the naive perspective of being a child. The Life of Pi book. Um, where the main character experiences this horrible event on a boat. And when you read the story, you think he's stranded on this little boat with a tiger and like other animals. And then it's not until afterwards that you realize that the reality is it was humans that was on the boat. And one particular human was murdering everybody and he lost his mother and all these things that kind of forced him to almost separate himself from reality to survive. And then now he's kind of healing and telling the story about it and so I was like I could see like the child the naivety of the child having to like protect themselves to tell the story but at the same time he detaches from reality so it's like madness yeah uh, I thought that was super interesting yeah and 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 the the fun thing about it is like you look at, at Rashomon uh Rashomon is it tells a the same story from three different pers- uh, from actually four different perspectives and it, it, for a film from the 1950s, it holds up really, really, really well. And so, like, there are there's four characters. There's the bandit, there's the wife, there's the samurai, and then there's the woodcutter. Um, and the and the woodcutter actually comes back as a ghost. Um, and so, like, you have these different perspectives. And what's interesting is the the uh, the wife actually she comes off as the the PTSD survivor because she was raped. Um, and her husband, the woodcutter, is murdered. Uh, but wow. then you have the bandit, and the bandit actually operates as a as a liar. He is like he doesn't say anything that is true. Like, he, uh, and sometimes he kind of plays the picaro where he's he's exaggerating a lot of stuff. Um, but he's he's you know, nothing you can say that he says is meant to be taken seriously because. All you think of is he is he's this crazy guy who just killed uh, you know he he killed someone. I take that back. I'm sorry. It's not the woodcutter that was killed. It was the samurai. Uh, the samurai is the is the wife is the husband of the wife. Um, and so there's there's a and so there's a whole whole thing that is it's just you have all these different perspectives and each one it falls into this classification. Um, because like the samurai, like I'm, I'm, uh, the samurai is, um, actually the last perspective that's told for the story. And it's told through a medium, someone's channeling his spirit and, um, the, uh, the, uh, samurai's perspective is that the bandit asked the wife to marry him and she accepted and asked the bandit to kill her husband so she could get out of that marriage first. Ooh. And and the wife is like, yeah, and the wife's like, I never did that. He assaulted me. He raped me. He killed my husband. I had nothing to do with this. I'm completely innocent. Um, and but then you've got the woodcutter, you know, who comes in. He's kind of the third perspective, and he's just like, no, all, all these fault, all these stories are, are completely false. So, so how do you find out the truth? Um, the truth is actually somewhere in the middle because, because like there, there is an epilogue and 
there is there's really there's really no there's no truth you have it's about it's about looking for the the details and finding out it kind of exploring the truth for yourself that whenever you're dealing with a court case uh especially court cases aren't about the truth they're about coloring the truth it's about the perspective it's and you have to go off of the facts and evidence um which is why like you know for example uh you look at a great example of this in the modern day would be what happened between johnny depp and amber heard mm -hmm. amber heard came out at this whole thing saying johnny did this 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 and this and she showed specific footage uh and she leaked it and released it lied about it saying that it wasn't her but it was her or at least through her people and showing him in this particular light ruins his reputation and then they go into trial and things start coming out in the trial that really show you know the perspective in a different light and don't get me wrong by no means is, is Johnny Depp an innocent in this. Um, I mean, he was, he was belligerent. He was drunk. He may have been verbally, maybe even emotionally abusive. don't know to the extent of it, but he is not the, he's not the quote unquote bad guy that Heard made him out to be. That was such an interesting case because, because of the unreliable nature of all of it, because you see how people respond to different things. So if you go online, of course, social media, you have people kind of clinging to so many different angles, mm -hmm. you know, teaching each other about it, but it's very divisive. And yes. um, which kind of tells you like, what, what kind of mess was this in the first place for it to be so divisive? Cause I watched, you know, scenes of it and I felt very convinced in one perspective. And then I see like another person's perspective. I'm like, oh, I didn't think about it that way, you know, and you kind of learn from each other, but that's a really great example. Yeah. And it's court cases are really fun to look at because everyone's perspective about it is going to be different. Even the people who are involved. Um, so um, are you familiar there was a there was a murder trial that happened here 15 years or so ago. Uh, it was the the murder of a woman named Debbie Hawk. Okay, I have not heard of it. It hit national news headlines. Um, she went missing for months, and they eventually found her minivan abandoned in the Fresno area. It had been set on fire and everything like that, and it looked like it had been like a botched job or whatever. Um, and there was no there was no physical evidence linking her husband to the murder and yet he was imprisoned and it wasn't until after he had gone to prison it was just in the last few years that a bunch of farmers out in the countryside they were they were digging um something i think they were like redigging a well and they found her body buried in a berm oh yeah, and they did DNA testing. It, they found it was her. There's still no physical evidence linking the husband or ex-husband uh, to the to the murder. Um, no one, but you know, there was enough suspicions because people knew that he was not he was not the greatest of guys. Fast forward, you know, here we are now. Um, her, her, she she had two kids. The son, who's both both kids are now adults, but the son adamantly believes that his father is guilty of this the daughter on the other hand who's younger adamantly believes in her father's innocence Ooh. and so you have two people in the same family who are related to each other 
with completely different perspectives on what happened with who was involved in the murder of their mother. That's interesting. Cause so how were they able to jail him without physical evidence? Were they going off of just other factors? There was enough, there is enough um, evidence from other sources that put him in without where he had no alibi for it. Okay. Um, and it just, it's things were, were funky to begin with. Um, so it's, it's just, I don't know. It's, yeah, it, it very, very bizarre situation. Um, but it was one of those things that hit, it, it, like it happened in 2008 and it just, it was, it was insane. It sounds um, insane. Switching real quick to, cause I want to discuss American psycho before we go, because I've always wanted to know where you think, I don't, have you read the book? I know everyone's seen the movie. Have you read the book? I've, I've read parts of the book. Like I, like there's one particular passage where he's talking about, um, it's brutal. Oh, it's very brutal. <laughs> but it, it's a passage where he's talking about Whitney Houston's debut album mm, and just mm-hmm. how awesome that album is and how sexy it is. Um, and who produced it and stuff like that. And the detail that goes into it was just like, it's one of those things where, uh, where the where the narrator uh, which I'm, I'm assuming is is Bates mm-hmm. um, yeah uh, yeah Bateman um, he is um, he is in the like it's just one of those things where he's obfuscating the details like he's going into like because I mean, he's one of those 80s yuppie guys working on Wall Street and he's just going on to this unnecessary detail and it's just one of those things that he himself is obsessing over as a narcissist because it because he doesn't want to deal with the truth of he's not that good of a guy. Yeah. That the book, okay. So I watched the movie years ago. I tend to rewatch it every now and then because I find it to be like a black comedy. It's like it's awful, it's awful, of course, but it, of course it's a satire too on you know yeah. Wall Street guys. But I decided to finally start reading the book a couple of years ago and I was kind of blown away at the cleverness of of the writing because it's entirely unreliable you have no idea what the reality is of it because um it'll make reference to him doing awful awful things and then the next paragraph it's like it didn't happen people react Mm -hmm. as if it wasn't said or he commits crimes and and the next day it's like it, it wasn't you know didn't happen so i'm like is it from the reading perspective is it a exaggeration i mean clearly it's lying but it's also like playful and of course he's mad later when he completely he's um so where does he there's there's kind of a there's kind of a different um kind of a different take because like he i mean there is the unreliableness the unreliability to it um he there's definitely he's definitely you know going from this whole crazy thing um because you know he's he's a psychopath but mm-hmm. um but there's also this he's also coming at it from the perspective of a criminal he knows that he's not a good guy he knows that he is he's awful um and so he becomes a willful liar in that regard so he like this is where you have an unreliable narrator who crosses the boundaries of different categories mm-hmm. um and so because of that transition of of 
from one category to the next, it's really hard to pin down exactly what it is. And I think that that fits in very well, especially with Bateman's character, because he is a narcissist. A narcissist, um, just from a clinical perspective, tend to uh, lie. <laughs> well, it's part of their nature, but it, they they tend to bounce from one categorization to another very easily, like just like they're changing a jacket or something, simply because they want it. They're they are. Um, well, I always feel like it's they're shifting their reality constantly, and they, they are believe that that is the truth. Right, and and they are doing that, but it's it's about mitigating image. Okay. And so, so for Bateman to be the narrator of his own story, he is, he is mitigating the image that you as the reader are getting of him uh, in the story. And so the more, the more you read into it, you're going to see things and it's like, man, this is, this is kind of cool. But at the same time, he is, he's awful. Yeah. <laughs> he's it's, just an awful it's character. So- it's so, I found it to be such an interesting way to narrate it uh, because it's, I, I highly recommend the read for those that can stomach it because the way that it plays with your head, you, you feel gaslit, you feel manipulated. Uh, and mm-hmm. the fact that the author could capture that in a story, it's just, it's, it's a gross, but like stunning book. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. And, and- and okay. Ellis's writing on it is just, it's, it's really superb. I've only been able to like read bits and pieces of it. I don't actually have a copy of my own. And just because it's not, it's not usually the kind of thing I, I get into, but it, it is just, it's so well done because he plays the character. Christian Bale, just, he's a phenomenal actor. He plays the character well. And, and, Ellis's writing of Bateman is so superbly done that you you get this fully rounded character even though he's got some missing pieces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for readers that are interested, I don't know if you've heard of this. Um, there is oh shoot, and of course as I'm talking about it, I'm forgetting the name of the book. There's a female version, uh, not like a literal female. I know that they made one um, with Mila Kunis as a movie, but mm-hmm. there's a there's a, a book about the fashion industry or the fashion magazine industry where a woman is working for a company and her perspective is also skewered and she goes and kills people, but then it's like, it didn't happen. And I, Oh, I wish I could remember what it was because I started reading it and it perfectly captured the, the microaggressions and bullying that happens with women in in those kinds of jobs and of course the author came from that industry too that I actually had to stop reading like when I asked you that question earlier about have you ever read a book that made you super uncomfortable but you still think about that's Mm -hmm. the book for me where I had to stop it and then I ended up going to therapy later like not because of that book but like for anxieties and stuff like that and through that I realized why that book made me so anxious so I think for those um if I can think of the book, I'll put it in the show notes. If anyone's really curious about it, it definitely, you need to protect your mental health. And I would say the same thing for American Psycho. You have to kind of protect your mental health and know what you're kind of getting into before you start. Yeah. And, and I'm, for me, I'm not one of those writers that, that uh, I don't put, you know, trigger warnings or anything in the things that I write. Um, I simply write because it's something that needs to go out. Um, But like, you know, with my fifth book there, I, I, like 
I didn't anticipate how some people might respond to it. Um, and the the gal that I'm currently dating, uh, she's actually in the process of reading through the fifth book in my series, which uh, she was telling me that she had to stop reading for about a day after she finished a particular chapter because there's a scene where a character gets tortured um, and it for her with some of her past experiences um, she it, it triggered something for her and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not going to go into the details there because that's that's shared you know that's confidential information but I was I I had to take a step back and, and kind of reconsider I'm like do I need to start putting these kinds of warnings into my books because it's not something I've considered in the past because I'm I'm personally I'm one of those readers where I'm like I'm going to read something. It's probably going to make me uncomfortable. If it doesn't make me uncomfortable, then it's not worth reading. Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, watching for that matter. Um, so there's, there's certain things that I've, uh, that I need to take into account, but yeah, it's books are books, movies, music, whatever it is, the art form there, there are going to be points where it, it causes us to respond to something, you know, from our past or, from, you know, whether it's distant past or recent past. And I mean, look at, uh, you know, it's not an unreliable narrator situation, but look at the response that happened from veterans of World War II when they saw Saving Private Ryan. Mm -hmm. Several people who had, you know, gone through so many things when they saw the, the footage of, of uh, D-Day had, had PTSD flashbacks. Wow. So, yeah. Um, but it is important, is very important to make sure that your mental health is, uh, is taken care of. Um, so if you're, yeah, I, I'm right there with you. If you see something that, or reading something that uh, is starting to trigger something, take a step back, get yourself situated before re-engaging. Yes, absolutely. So the last category of unreliable narrator, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about because I had an, I thought was an obvious, um, like the only, actually quite honestly, the, the, the only book that I could think of that was like really famous that had to do with an outsider's perspective was uh, in The Great Gatsby. And so I watched an old school version of the movie. Then of course there's the Leonardo DiCaprio version that came out. And so I, when I, you know, have a very old memory, it's not a very good memory of the book. I just remember thinking, oh, this is about a guy that's exposing kind of like the awfulness of it. I guess, rich people, whether it's new money, old money, all that stuff. And that the fact that all the money in the world won't prevent you from being miserable. Um, and so that's kind of like the idea of class divides and all that stuff. And so at first I was like, well, maybe that isn't unreliable though. Maybe that's just a perspective. But then the latest movie has Nick Carraway narrating to what I think is either his therapist or some doctor or something like that. So he's already receiving mm -hmm. treatment for some kind of trauma. And um, in the book itself, he claims to like, I believe he claims to be non-judgmental, but it's clear that he is judgmental of these characters. And so then I was like, then I realized, oh, the perspective that we get of the these rich people could be completely colored by the narrator's perspective. And that got me thinking, maybe I should reread it to see if there's kind of room for, for um, interpretation. And I, I have a friend who's, who loves the great Gatsby and I'll have to reach out to him at some time at point, because it's like, was it an unreliable narrator um, or was it like a pretty good interpretation? I would, I would say yes. Cause I'm looking at the description of what, of what makes the outsider an unreliable narrator. It's basically the narrator may be prejudiced by race, class, politics, culture, or gender. 
So in this case, Caraway is is prejudiced because of the class going the class situation going on. Okay. Um, and so so yeah, as he's narrating the story of what's happening with Gatsby uh, and all the other shenanigans that, go, that happens in the story, he does he is an out uh, a uh, he is an unreliable narrator but he is he's probably more trustworthy than any of the it, like if you were to switch to any of the other characters because mm-hmm. if you look at if you were to look at things from um from gatsby's perspective um he would be considered you know he'd be considered a crazy person mm-hmm. because you know drugs and alcohol being kind of the thing that's going on for him because like this is post world war one um, it takes place, I mean, the story is being told in the 1930s, but it's taking place during the Roaring Twenties, and during the 1920s, for the most part, the United States was under, um, uh, uh, what's the word? Um, the, roar- the Roaring Twenties you're talking about? Yeah, the, yeah. Uh, Prohibition. Prohibition, yes. Prohibition. Mm-hmm. So the fact that alcohol and, and you know, is, is being used is, you know, that's a, that, that's a no-go for launch throughout most of the country. And so he'd be considered um, a crazy character. Then, um, uh, you know, the fact that he was completely lying about his, well, not lying, but like putting together uh, a fake persona in order to get closer to Daisy. It's yeah. He's yeah. Entirely unreliable. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, you have, I mean, there's tons of, tons of great examples. Um, of, of that because like if you're just if you were to switch from oh gosh um looking at characters um daisy for example oh um, yeah i mean she's she's a i mean she's self-absorbed she's she's a socialite everything's about her and she's not this nice she's not a nice person to begin with but um she you know she kind of falls in line as, as kind of the, the innocent type character because she's caught in the middle of all of this. She, the, I mean, cause the conflict between, you know, that arises between her fascination with Gatsby and being married to Tom Buchanan, it, it's the, this one of the central conflicts of the story. And so the fact that she's kind of caught in the middle and she's dealing with that, she, I mean, she's, but she's she doesn't have like the typical traits like having lower than normal uh, intelligence or having some other kind of disability or anything like that. Um, you I know, guess you and, could argue for the time period when women were not you know particularly empowered to yes yeah then that would be a limitation for her yeah I, I think another another great example going off of movies and this is a really extreme example of an unreliable narrator would be Deadpool. Who, oh, because yeah. Deadpool constantly breaks the fourth wall, and he has ever since his inception as a character in the comics. Um, and so, I mean, whether you're looking at the comics, you're looking at animation, video games, movies, what have you, he is constantly breaking the fourth wall. He's constantly an unreliable narrator. So, like when you watch the movie, and you in in um, and you know he talks about uh, like especially the second one because that's the one that's more fresh in my mind. He says that this, you know, the movie's a family movie. Well, that takes into a whole lot of consideration of well, what classifies a, a family movie? Because like I remember going to see the first film in theaters, um, 
and sitting right next to me in the row are a pair of kids who are like under the age of six. Oh, and wow. their mom is like, I mean, you know, the stadium seating, their mom is like 10 rows above us, completely oblivious to what her kids are doing. And her kids are crying because of all the violence. Oh my God. Oh yeah. They, they had, I'm like, where is the parents? Oh my. Um, and you had to deal with that. Like, I don't mean yeah. deal with that, but I mean, like you, you, like you're there with them. The yeah. mom's not <laughs> I'm like, this is an R rated movie. There's tons of profanity. So from a, so this is not a family friendly movie mm-hmm. um, at, at the slightest. And then you, you look at his description of it. Yeah. It's a, okay. It's a movie about found family. Got it. Uh. He's, he's <laughs> words because that's what he's talking about. Yeah. He's a, fa- and, it's a found family movie. <laughs> right. Exactly. So um, and Deadpool's great about that. Like he, uh, he kind of plays the. He's kind of a crazy character. He's kind of, he kind of um, plays. Well, uh, he kind of plays the criminal as well. Um, he's a willful liar. So he crosses those classifications left, right, and center. Um, one of my favorite iterations was in the Ultimate Spider-Man cartoon series that Disney put out. They had Will Friedle doing the voiceover for Deadpool. Oh, did and, they? I love him. I didn't know he well, did that. He's, okay. he's hilarious in this role. And so like um he he gets really zany takes spidey out on an adventure and this this is a version of spidey that's like in his he's a high school age he's like 16 at the at the most and so he and deadpool go go on a romp throughout manhattan and they end up going into a fight with taskmaster and all deadpool wants to do is kill taskmaster but because it's cartoon and he knows it's a cartoon he can't use the word kill <laughs> because of censorship okay. so he uses the word unalive Oh yeah. (laughs) And it takes Spidey a couple of times to hear that before he realizes, wait a minute, when you say unalive, he's like, yes, yes, yes. We're going to permanently remove him from existence. (laughs) I love that. I need to go look that up now. (laughs) It is like, it's, it's seriously a really awesome uh, episode. It's really fun. Uh, You could probably find on Disney plus if you, if you've got it. Um, But I'm the clip circulates on, on YouTube all the time. But the point is that Deadpool falls into that because he is mentally unstable. Um, he's, uh, I mean, a character who is so perceptive enough that he knows he's in a comic book or some yes. fictional or some iteration of fiction. Um, that's, that's a little scary in and of itself because um, he's, he's crossing those boundaries. Um, but then he's, he's an active criminal. He is trying to persuade you that what he is doing is not wrong. So like in the first film, when he's telling you that he's going after a bunch of bad guys, yeah, sure, they're bad guys, but he's committing murder. Mm-hmm. I have yeah. some, oh, sorry. What were you going to say? say? He's cutting people open. He's, he's stabbing them. He's blowing them up. You know, he's giving them, you know, atomic wedgies. Mm-hmm. So not necessarily. That's like a great example. I, Deadpool is fantastic <laughs> because, but because there's also comedy to it yeah. right there's a there's comedy and that's where it also falls into the picker or the exaggeration because com- exaggeration is comedy and yes. you use that to lean into the unreliable narrator yes. okay i have some listener submitted questions for you Ooh, yes that's okay. great i like listener um, submitted questions. yes we only got two but that's pretty good i think this maybe they were just really just excited to hear i think one person just said i'm just excited to learn about unreliable narrators so i was like perfect um so the first one is is it possible to rehabilitate an unreliable narrator that's a good question um i've never even considered the the idea of, of rehabilitation um 
and I think it depends on which version of the unreliable narrator you're looking at. Because um, if you're looking at like a, say like an innocent type character, um, like say Forrest Gump, while because for because if you go through the movie, Forrest is the is the uh, uh, he's the narrator for the story mm-hmm. up to a certain point, then it becomes more of an omniscient thing. Um, but uh, Forrest is, he, I mean, he's one of those characters that is, I would say, you, he he's got a, a the potential for being redemptive, uh, redeemed, and and uh, rehabilitated, simply because. Um, he does have uh, the the learning disability. That's part of it. He's not an idiot. He, he's actually in, in the in the way he's described in the book. He's an idiot savant. Oh, um, okay. So like he doesn't he doesn't understand common sense things like most people do. Um, and his answers come off making him seem like a simpleton. But he is absolutely brilliant at whatever he puts his mind to. Well, so, like, he's not malicious issue. either, right? So, so like, well, well, if you're looking at the movie. Yes, but in the book, <laughs> he has like some severely racist statements throughout. Oh, the book. But part is of that, that reflective of the author, or is that like his character? It's more reflective of the time period in which he grows up. Okay, okay, okay. Because he oh. grows up in Alabama in the South in the early part of the 20th century, going or early to mid 20th century, going into the Vietnam War. Okay. So like 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Um. So there's, so there's a, uh, so there's that factor to it um so he's not the nicest of people in in the book they but it's you know tom hanks every you know hollywood's dad is you know playing him so we have to tone it down mm-hmm. um but the but yeah i mean i would say he would be one of those kinds of characters that has the ability of being redeemed has the ability of being um rehabilitated can we rehabilitate uh, patrick bateman Oh, absolutely not he's he's a full-on <laughs> psychopath um the, I mean, that's like that's like saying can we rehabilitate the joker okay no. fair okay and, and 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 even if we could the question is why would we okay because like because going into the uh, going into talk i mean just bringing up the joker um there are like when if you watch through the dark night and he starts telling people about how he got his scars Oh, yes. There's a whole reason why they wrote that in. So there was a a running storyline in DC Comics where you, where you have what's called the three Jokers. And they actually made it canon where there's actually three different people who are the Joker at any given time, which is why it was always difficult for, for anyone to figure out how the Joker would escape Arkham when Batman had just arrested him. Um, but... Each one it had served a, a purpose. One was a comedian. One was the madman. One was the uh, was the uh, the gangster. Um, so the, each one served a purpose, and they all had their own their, their own thing. Um, and I haven't gone through. And I haven't read that full storyline. But the way that Heath Ledger goes about telling the the scars story in the film is kind of based on that because there's a couple of different versions that even the Joker has told from time to time to people who've listened um, that he was a failed comedian who got in deep with the sharks. And, you know, this is how he, he, he had to make his money back or he was a gangster um, and a low level thug and he got betrayed and he turned out crazy. And so 
you have these different versions. And so even his own story is unreliable because mm-hmm. no one really knows which version they're going to get. And even he doesn't know the right version. So if we're just dealing with one person, he's deliberately lying to us. He is crazy. He is a psychopath. But then if you look at it from the perspective that there's three different individuals, that would make sense why you have three different origin stories. Interesting. Um, I didn't know then, about that. That's cool. But then if you look at, um, if you look at, there, there was an episode that was done for the Batman animated series to kind of flesh out Harley Quinn's backstory. Cause she was a because as a character, Harley Quinn didn't show up until the 1990s when uh, Paul Dini wrote her in for a Batman episode. She was supposed to be a one and done henchwoman, mm-hmm. but she had such a huge fan following that they kept bringing her back and uh, they made her a canon character in the comics because of the show. And so they finally get to a point where they explain her backstory and how she got connected to the Joker. And so like it, it, part of that was was depicted in the the Suicide Squad film from 2016. But the episode is called Mad Love and they actually ended up doing it as a, as a motion comic on HBO. Um, and it's a really sad story that like she was the Joker's doctor. She was, she was really obsessed with like trying to figure him out and help rehabilitate him because like that would make her career. And she didn't realize just how devious he was and he manipulated her. Ooh. And so she plays the innocent because she's, she's intelligent. Yes. And she is a criminal. So she crosses that line as well, but, but she, um, she, as innocent as she is, she makes a conscious choice to pursue what he asks her to do. And he asks her to do some really criminal things. So she makes the choice to completely torpedo her career and go nuts. Interesting. So basically what you're saying is rehabilitation of an unreliable narrator depends on the character. Right. Whether you're Forrest Gump or you're the Joker. Right. And, and so like, like with like going back to Harley Quinn, she has been rehabilitated. She, in, in several versions, she has either become a member of the Justice League or she's been at least rehabilitated into the Bat family. Um, and works alongside the Dark Knight and his Robins and Nightwing and all those characters. Um, but then you've got versions that completely go go off. Like, if, if you're looking at from the, the DC animated universe, which kicked off with the Batman animated series, uh, there is a, um, the Batman Beyond series kind of looks, it does explore some characters from the animated series who were... Um, who have gotten older and have moved on from that life. And they, they made a film called Batman Beyond Return of the Joker. Um, and in that, there are a pair, there's a gang called the Jokers that model themselves off of the Joker in some way, shape or form. They take, they take on clown disguises and stuff like that. And there's a pair of twins voiced by Melissa Joan Hart called Dee Dee. That's just all they go by. Mm-hmm. Um, and they look the same, they sound the same, they're, they're gymnasts and they're supposed to be reminiscent of Harley Quinn. We'll come to find out at the very end, they're getting bailed out of jail by their grandmother. Um, and uh, come to find out their grandmother is Harley Quinn. Interesting. So and she's upset with them because she's basically the one who's helped raise them. She's the one who's been looking out for them. And here they are getting themselves in trouble 
with someone claiming to be the Joker. Interesting. So she had a redemption, basically. It's and- all green, but yes, that seems to be the case. Interesting. Okay. All right. Here's the second question. The last question, actually. Why can't they just do what they say they're going to do? Uh, the unreliable narrator. Yeah. Um, because what they because their their goals are in conflict with one another. So um, when I initially talked with you about doing this this episode, um, I we had mentioned the Prestige, mm-hmm. um, and the Prestige is one of my favorite movies. Is one of my favorite books. In fact, I, I just finished listening to it on audio, and it was absolutely captivating. Uh, both the movie and the book are done in what's called a, a diuretic um, uh, uh, format, where it's all done through journal entries and, and diary entries. Um, and so what you see through the majority of the movie is one character reading the journal of another character, um, with the exception of like the, the, the prologue and the epilogue of the film, mm-hmm. um, and, and even with the book. And it what happens is these these perspectives color what's happening and so like the two main characters rupert angier and and alfred borden um you can you can see them playing at odds with one another you can like there you can see there's conflict in what they want to do what their end goal is with what their immediate goal is like both both uh, magicians want to be the best there is at at performing this trip called the transported man um whereas um borden gets really antagonistic with uh with angier and angier for the most part t- tries to stay away from it but in the process of outdoing borden comes to a point where he loses his own humanity and when you look back at the story it's there's a class war going on uh, because angier comes from well uh, comes from a wealthy family and borden came from working class conditions um where you have upper crust versus lower crust um and but then you also have um the way that they go about doing it like all of borden's the way that borden's methods work is all based on tried and true traditional old-fashioned stage magician work. Angier is always upping his game to the point where he has a machine built by by Nikola Tesla. Mm-hmm. And it's meant to do something that he wasn't anticipating it would do. Now in, in the movie, spoiler alert if you haven't seen the movie, basically it, it's a gigantic Xerox machine. And in the film, Angier, who's played by Hugh Jackman, doesn't know if he's going to be the man in the box at or if he's going to be the, the man in the prestige at the very end of the trick, mm-hmm. um, like it just like it's splitting his consciousness. Um, in the book, it actually takes it a different route, wherein the original body that goes into the machine actually dies. It, it like a still life, mm-hmm. whatever pose it was in before passing away. It just it's in that it's stuck in rigor mortis, and his consciousness in a new body is transported where it's supposed to go, um, and. And so they, and what ends up happening is the way that he loses his, his humanity is that in the book, um, his con- like he's in the middle of the transportation and Borden shuts down the machine. So the physical body is still in one place. The, the consciousness gets split somewhere else. 
And over the course of the next few months, Angier's body, his physical body dies while his, his consciousness that remains, which is separate, is like a ghost. Mm, interesting. And so there's two versions of him at any given time, and which is talked about in, in Borden's perspective, in his journal entries. And he's trying to figure out how this happened. But then, and so like it, that, and that's how, that's how Angier loses his humanity. It's, and it's, I'm it's, going it's, off of my memory of the movie. The other magician had a twin. Yes. And that's how he was pulling off the, the trick. The transported man, yeah. Whereas the and, other guy is literally divine. <laughs> the loss of yeah. science. <laughs> and he's duplicating himself. Yeah. And so, um, and so you have, but even still in the, in the process, Borden in a way loses his humanity because, because it's two versions playing the same person. It's two different people playing one character. Mm. And uh, so like there's one version that actually loves his wife. There's one version that loved the, 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 the fiance or the mistress and trying to play each other to the other. It was, it was overwhelming because one of them was constantly wanting to un, one up uh, Angier instead of leaving him alone. And that's the version that, that antagonizes Angier throughout most of the story. So like, like, the, and there are times in Borden's telling of, of the events where he's like, I'm arguing with myself. Mm. I am angry with, with me. And his, his wording and his phrasing is very specific because it's code. Well, I, that's a great example. Um, so Garrett, we're coming up on time <laughs> and I hate, I hate to stop the conversation because I know we could talk for so much more, but yeah. are there any final remarks that you'd like to give? Tell our listeners how to find you. Well, uh, as far as how to find me, um, you guys can connect with me on Instagram and Twitter. I'm mostly on Instagram, um, but it's the same at, at GKJ underscore publishing. Um, and through my, through my platforms, I, um, I promote my YouTube channel. The YouTube channel is just simply called GKJ Publishing. I do a show called The Right Way, where we do uh, top 10 uh, book recommendations, author interviews. I do creative writing tips, which right now I'm in the process of um, finishing up a series of writing tips on world building um, using Ellen Brock's World Building Bible. And then, um, and I'm actually coming into the last month of season five. So I'll be taking a break come August. Um, so I've got four, four episodes left. I've got the one coming up on July the 1st, which is uh, top 10 book recommendations, uh, where I have a guest host. Her name is Stormy Lewis. She's providing her, um, her 10 or so uh, recommendations. Uh, the week after that, I have an author interview um, with a wonderful uh, fantasy author. And then um, I'll take a break mid-July for a, uh, to do a, a live stream on Instagram. And then one writing tip video and then the last Saturday of July will be a special season closeout. Speculative Sandbox is a volunteer-run podcast that relies on the collaboration of fellow creators like you. Join the conversation and participate in fun polls and questionnaires on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. Interested in being in a future episode? Our DMs are open, or you can email speculativesandbox at gmail.com.